Welcome to the School of Wellbeing. I'm your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker and teacher wellbeing specialist. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and waters on which this podcast is being recorded. and welcome to episode 114 of the School of Wellbeing. As the new school year gains momentum across the country, I thought it would be worth taking a moment to consider our graduate and early career teachers. Can you remember your first day of teaching? When I first stepped into the classroom, I was 21, living at home with my parents and bursting with excitement. Finally, I would have my own class and my own class list. I had watched all the movies to serve with love and dangerous minds, and I was ready, ready to educate the future. Well, we all know how that story goes. The first year of teaching is fueled with so many moments of, huh, I didn't know that we had to do this. How do I do this? Is everybody doing this? Am I doing this right? Am I doing this okay? How do I say this? How do I do this? There's so many questions in our first year, so much learning. The cognitive load is so high because everything is brand new and we're dealing with young people and their parents and there is just so much happening. So what can we do to better support graduate and early career teachers? Today's guest, Emma Gentle, is here to help. Em is a founder of the Grad Guide Mentorship, a safe and supportive hub designed to empower, educate and encourage pre-service and new teachers by providing support, community and education all in one place. Em is an experienced educator that started her journey as a teacher's aide to then become a primary school teacher and eventually stepping into the role of assistant principal, in which she specialised in mentoring new teachers and oversaw school-wide learning support and wellbeing initiatives. Em is dedicated to equipping early career teachers and aspiring leaders with the invaluable tools and knowledge of emotional intelligence, conscious and compassionate teaching, and leading using a non-punitive, trauma-informed approach. In this conversation, we discuss why we need to invest time and energy into our early career teachers, the most common issues early career teachers are facing, how to bring out the best in our early career teachers, and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Emma Gentle. Em, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. So nice to be here, Meg. Thanks for having me. Today we're going to be talking about practical ways to support graduate and early career teachers. What do you hope teachers and school leaders will gain from listening to this conversation? So firstly, I think reflecting on 2023 is really important if that hasn't been done yet, because we can rush towards the end of the year and then take a breath and look to Christmas, which is amazing. But I think often we're just wanting to wind up and that reflection piece doesn't land. And then we're already thinking, oh, it's January. Let's start thinking about 2024. I know we're in January now, but even just reflecting on what really went well as a school or as a leadership team or as a teacher, 2023, and then focusing your efforts towards 2024. So I guess it's a reflection piece on what's working well, but also what we need to do looking into 2024. 
That is so true that we finish the year like, oh, we made it. And yet some of the most rich learning comes from that reflection piece. How well did we support our teachers? What worked really well and what didn't? And I know you work so closely with graduate and early career teachers, and I would love to know what are some of the changes that you've noticed over the years? Well, we already know, Meg, that the teaching load has increased and yet our time off class has not increased. So I think that new teachers are coming in feeling a lot more stressed because they realise they don't have a lot of time to tick all the boxes and get all the things done. And in that, I think that teaching has become a little bit overcomplicated and look at all the boxes we need to tick. And it can seem really unmanageable. Yeah, I think mainly the teaching load. I also want to talk about social media. I think that that has a lot of grads in a chokehold at the moment. And I think that it is a wonderful asset to education, but also think that it can be a little bit concerning. I don't know about you, but I think that a lot of people too look at follow accounts. And I think that can be very damaging to grads because it's easy to go on social media and think, oh, this person has like 10K or 20K or 100K followers. They must know how to be a really effective teacher, but that's just not the case. And that's not to say that there aren't some wonderful accounts out there. I think it's awesome. Obviously, we're both on social media. We know that it can have a positive effect on education, but I think that grads need to use their discernment in terms of who they're following and where they're really receiving their professional professional development. I know that for me, I like going on there to learn new things, but it can be really easy to get caught up in the web of social media and be thinking, you know, I've seen that this teacher's doing that. So maybe I should do that, or maybe I should try it, or my classroom doesn't look like that, or I'm not wearing those outfits. And it just comes back to what feels good for you as well. So following people on social media who align with your practice. So if you are evidence informed, which we definitely should be making sure that we're taking things with a grain of salt, and making sure that there is evidence behind what people are preaching because I get on TikTok sometimes and I can't believe that people are following this person and thinking that this is best practice. And I don't want that to come from a judgmental place, but I really think we need to use our discernment when we're following people on social media. Yeah, some of the behavior management stuff that I see on there, it just really concerns me. And for me, when I was a graduate teacher, it was not a part of the landscape and I found it hard enough to keep up just in my own school and what was happening in other classrooms. And I can't imagine now this pressure that graduate and early career teachers are feeling because they're seeing into other people's classrooms. And as you say, just because it's a story on Instagram or a post on LinkedIn, it doesn't mean that that's always factual. Yeah, there's so much nuance that comes along with it too. And so if we're looking to just propel our career using Instagram and TikTok and social media, then we're in a bit of trouble. But there are some awesome tips on there and it's great to build communities and things like that. I just think the number one tip there is to use your discernment. If you're following someone that makes you feel like you're not good enough or that you have to sort of compete with them or be like them, then unfollow them or mute them or yeah, just use your discernment. But again, there's heaps of people doing fabulous things in their businesses for education and they're sharing that on Instagram and TikTok and Facebook and things like that. And I think that's really amazing. But it's so easy to just get into that web of doom scrolling and saving posts and thinking we're we're going to come back to them and use that in our classrooms. And sometimes that can just add to our cognitive load. And we don't even 
know that it's happening. I do it all the time. Like I know that there's times where I'm like, I need to stop consuming so much and just go with the flow and just be. Yes, and that's a skill that we learn over time. And it really highlights how different the world is for our newer teachers compared to for so many teachers who are listening to this podcast and for school leaders. It wasn't a part of teaching this whole world of social media and Instagram and look what I'm doing in my classroom and let's make everything look Instagram worthy. And I've had so many school leaders say to me, Em, that I'm not sure what's going on, but the classrooms are going to the next level. And I'm like, well, have you seen Instagram recently? I know. So I forget too that these teachers are 20, 21 years old and I don't see, I don't feel like I'm old. I'm 33, but I just think if I was 20, 21, I totally get it. I would be looking at, because I did it as well. And Instagram, I've never had an Instagram or anything like that. It was just Elizabeth Richards and ordering all the fun, exciting things. And I think it was Instant Letters. Do you remember that website? You can still get free downloadable letters to make displays and things. Like that was really cool to do. So I totally get how you could be sucked into that vortex of, oh my God, this classroom is magical. Let's set it up. But if we're spending all of our January holidays setting up our classroom to look really pretty and then all of a sudden we get to week one and we have no idea how to build classroom culture we don't know much about our neurodivergent children we haven't planned effectively all the things that really actually matter and it's not that learning environment does not matter because it does it sets the tone we want children teachers to feel safe we want the classroom to be inviting but there's a lot of classrooms that are going to that next level and it actually becomes really stimulating for the kids. Uh, We have overstimulated kids then and it's a bit of a recipe for disaster. And it's really highlighting that performative element of teaching, which we all know there is a performative element. However, when we only focus on that, it comes at a cost. So I'm really curious to know what are graduate teachers coming to you for? What are the skills and training that once they get into the classroom, they realize I had no idea about this? So my whole business is centered around educating teachers and leaders around non-punitive trauma-informed and affirming practice. And we are still seeing in universities the behaviorist paradigm, I suppose, being pushed. So still using rewards and consequences and things like that to sort of coerce children in the classroom. And a lot of teachers are coming to me because they don't align with that approach. So what I'm seeing too now is conscious parenting is translating now to sort of conscious teaching, I suppose you could describe it that way. And so what teachers are coming to me for is obviously help in becoming a teacher because the umbrella of teaching is huge. So we look at holistic classroom management, we're looking at lesson planning, we're looking at navigating parents and working with colleagues, looking after yourself, so teacher wellbeing, the mindset aspect, being able to have that growth mindset and realize that there are going to be challenges, but I'm going to be okay and make it through and that I can do my best and really that community element of I want to be surrounded by people in the same boat who are navigating the same challenges and celebrating wins and things like that. But in terms of my approach, people are coming to the grad guide to learn how to support their neurodivergent learners, to learn how to create safe environments so that all students feel safe, but especially the children who have had trauma. So I love that I feel like we're on this brink of a paradigm change where teachers 
teachers are wanting to look underneath behavior and really understand their children. And that is what is lacking, I think, at university is the understanding of the difference between a neurodivergent brain and a neurotypical brain and how to support them and knowing that behavior on the outside and on the surface isn't necessarily what's going on for them. And we need to look beneath that in order to support them. So we look at proactively supporting the children and setting up the classroom, the environment and the educator so that we can set the children up for success from the start. And then we look at responsive strategies and it's a whole thing. Like it's all interconnected, right? Because then when we're looking at behavior and supporting behavior, if the grads are not confident in lesson planning and they don't know how to create an environment that is conducive to learning. So we're looking at cognitive load theory and explicit teaching and how we learn best now. So the science of learning, that's only sort of very new and some universities are making that change. So educators are hearing about that now. And even though they've just finished uni, they're still not equipped to teach in alignment with the science of learning. So we do a lot of work around that as well. And I get a lot of guest people in to the membership around literacy and numeracy to be able to teach that. So there's a lot that they're coming to me for. And unfortunately, it's because they're not feeling prepared entering the classroom. So yeah, we're doing our best one step at a time. Yes. And it is really interesting when you think about how many facets are involved in being a teacher. There are so many different puzzle pieces and it's very rare in any other profession that when you step in day one, you have the same responsibility as someone who has been teaching down the corridor 10, 15, 20 years. Oh, 100%. I did a beginning teacher observation this week where I worked with a teacher for the day and she was modeling reading using decodal text, which was great. Um, we were in a foundation classroom and I said, has anyone modeled how to do this, how to actually teach a one-on-one reading session? And she was like, no, I'm just doing what I think. And that is so concerning because we are not learning how to teach children how to read and write and become numerate. And yet that's our job. That's one of the main elements of our job. And we don't get taught how to do that at university. So it's really concerning when I hear from grads who don't have supportive leadership teams. And look, that's for a myriad of reasons. And it's very dependent on the school, whether leadership teams are just not equipped or they're snowed under, or there's so many reasons that it's not just one. But it's just concerning that we have grads who are just making it up as they go to do their best. And I just don't think that's good enough. And I think about my first few years, that's what I did. I just made it up. I literally just thought about the teachers that taught me at school, how they used to do it, what I've seen on movies, and I just made it up. I know. And see, that's the thing too, is why I'm so passionate in bringing this evidence information to light and allowing teachers and leaders to have access to it is because it can take 10, 15, 20 years for the research to land in the classroom and be actually utilized in the classroom. So we just can't wait that long. We can't wait because our students are demanding more, our families are demanding more, and we're also probably demanding more of ourselves. And so it's important to think about how can we best support the graduate and early career teachers that are in our system and probably move away from that. You know, it's probably a bit tough, but they'll be right. And think about what are some practical ways that we can support them as they're beginning this journey in a real life school context? 
Yeah, 100%. And I think that I don't mean this in a negative light, but knowing what we know about what they are getting at university is not assuming that because they're a qualified teacher now that they know what they're doing. We need to sort of assume the opposite. We need to assume that they are capable and they are feeling confident and they are ready and empowered and we need to meet them there and help them along the way. They're not just go, okay, cool, they're qualified, let's get them in that class, away they go. New teacher induction at the moment is not a thing. I have 230 members or something in the membership now. Not one of them has had a teacher induction, a new teacher induction. So even just going through everything to do with the school, and this isn't just for new teachers, this is for any teacher who is coming to that school. So you could be teaching for 10 years and go to a new school and you still should have a teacher induction, right? Because we would get to term two and I would ask, well, who is your line manager or who is your learning support officer or who do you go to for this? And they'd be like, I don't really know, actually. And so those things, just knowing if you have this scenario, if you have this question, this is the person to go to. It's really well-intentioned for leaders to say, if you have a question, you know where I am, or if you need me, you know where I am. But many new teachers don't want to put themselves out there in case they're going to be judged and say, hey, I don't know what I'm doing. No one wants to feel that way unless you're very good at being vulnerable and you are confident in yourself to go, hey, I actually don't know what I'm doing. I need help. Most people won't do that. And so I think it's a leader's job to really make sure that they are fostering that culture of safety and just meeting them where they're at and saying, hey, we are going to meet every week or every fortnight for our beginning teacher meeting. And that is where you can bring your wins, you can bring your challenges, your questions, and leaders actually having specific questions to ask the grads rather than saying, just let me know if you need help, right? Actually going to a meeting with an agenda and saying, we're going to look over this. So what I used to do was go through the high impact strategy. So we started with what does explicit teaching look like? What can this look like in your classroom, right? And then when your leadership team has time to go and observe the teacher, maybe you could model it for them and they could observe you and then you observe them. Like there needs to be this really hands-on support, especially in the first year and not just leaving them to sink or swim. Because I can guarantee you what I see most is that I have had so many teachers say, I don't want to do this and I can't be a teacher. This is not what I expected. I've had no support. I don't know what I'm doing with behaviors. And that's why they're predominantly coming to me. And I can only help them so much, right? Really, in an ideal world, we need people in the school alongside the grads, really helping them through. It's really interesting how you've highlighted that onboarding process and that orientation process and that it's not just for our early career teachers. It's every time we step into a new school, there are new ways of working. I know myself in my career, I have taught in so many different schools in different states and it feels like every time I stepped in as that new teacher, like, oh my God, I'm starting again. Like I kind of know what I'm doing, but I don't know the words. I don't know the language. Is it the portal? Is it this? Is it that? And we used to do that at my old school, but it actually wasn't called that. It was actually called this and trying to get your head around that. And I'm reflecting on a school that did it really, really well. And we were there, every new staff member, so if you're a graduate or not, any new staff member came along to some orientation sessions, which were so helpful. And they explained the school, how the school worked. And in my first few weeks, the principal came and observed the lesson. And I'd been teaching for a number of years when this happened. I thought, this is the first time someone in leadership has ever witnessed me in the classroom. And we had a really great conversation after it. And I thought, gosh, this is so powerful. And I was pretty lucky being a PE teacher 
When you're a PE teacher, you do lots of team teaching, you're out and about, you're seeing each other. However, in my science classes, no one used to see me other than the lab tech. That was it. I was up to my own devices. Yeah, and I don't think that we should assume that teachers don't want to be observed. I feel like we've moved past that culture. I know that when I first started teaching, it was like, oh, observations, I don't want people to observe me. But again, that's to do with the school culture, right, and what the leadership team fosters because it's not about the person. It's about your teaching practice, and that is a culture that you have to set up in your school. And yeah, I love that, like having an orientation day in the beginning, you know, even just like, okay, cool, we use this program called Central and this is how you log incidences and this is when you should do it or just all those little things that you usually just learn along the way. And when you were speaking then, Meg, I just thought about how much new teachers do get cognitive overload. They are learning how to teach, which they is really foreign to them, but then they're at a new school and they're learning all the systems and all the processes and all the things that are really patent for experienced teachers. So they already know what they're doing. All these tiny little things are more on top of what they're already learning. And no wonder they are absolutely exhausted. And that just reiterates how much support they really need. They really need to be held, especially in the first year. Gosh, I'm taking myself back to those first few weeks. I remember thinking about things around what am I going to wear and looking at other teachers and okay, well, that must be appropriate. This is what we wear here. Do we wear flats? Do we wear heels? Well, how do we actually manage this? There's so much that we're trying to pick up from the environment to figure out what's the unwritten code of conduct here. Yeah, 100%. And you made me laugh before thinking about when I went from Victoria to New South Wales, I swear there was like four logins that I needed. I didn't know what they were all for. I couldn't remember the passwords. It's a nightmare. And all the different curriculum documents. We're having a national curriculum. However, we'll just look at this and like look at this word and, oh, we don't do those scores here. We do these scores. We don't do exams like that. It's like, oh, okay. Every new environment, the context is so different. And what our students need from us as educators is really different. And what our parents are demanding of us is very different. I've worked in schools where you are begging parents to come. Like, please, I really want to have a conversation with you about this. And I have worked in schools where you think, oh my gosh, can you just give me a break? Everything's fine. Like, I'll let you know if there's any problems. Just give me a break. And every school has its really unique set of circumstances and it takes time and practice to navigate all of these circumstances. Yeah, definitely. And I think if schools don't have a playbook or some sort of handbook, then that is definitely a priority for a school so that a lot of it can be handed over in terms of this is how we do things, this is what's important to us, this is how you log in, all the basic things. And look, we are adults and we can learn as we go and that's part of our job 100%. But I just don't think that we are preparing new teachers or yet new staff enough when they are entering our school. So working through your membership, what are some of the changes you start to see in your early career teachers once they're feeling a little bit more equipped and supported? Perspective that I like to take is that I'm here to empower teachers so they feel confident because often what I see is or hear, oh, leadership aren't coming to save me type thing, right? And I think, yes, we've just spoken this whole podcast about leadership being supportive. That's a huge element. But as teachers too, I feel that, and this has definitely been my approach in my career, is that I want to take the initiative to go and upskill myself and learn as much as I can myself within the realm. So whether I'm focusing on literacy or I am focusing on classroom management or supporting behavior or neurodivergent children, whatever you want to focus on, and then learning the theory behind that first, okay, and then embedding that in your classroom by 
taking small steps to take on board or to adopt new strategies in your classroom. So usually we try and focus on one area. So for one teacher, it might be, let's focus on your well-being first because you're not looking after yourself. So everything else is going to fail. That's always a starting point. Let's look at your mindset. So we really focus on what we can control because back to what is going on with our schools as well, there's a lot of systemic systemic change that needs to happen. But I also think that collectively on an individual level, we can take responsibility for things that are in our control. And so learning more about how to support neurodivergent learners or how to adopt a trauma-informed approach, that's going to support all the learners in your classroom and you're going to feel more confident when you can look at a child and, and get curious. It's all about being curious and experimenting. That That's how I sort of look at your first few years. You're not supposed to know exactly what you're doing. You are almost in an experiment every day and you are just getting curious around why things might be happening and trialing and testing things, right? Because you don't know your teaching philosophy yet. You're not confident in that yet. And so it's all about discovering these things. So we usually focus on one area and get curious and start learning and start implementing things very slightly, just focusing on one thing at a time. That is some really great advice that I got in my first year, rather than looking at all the things I don't know, because that is how you feel, just pick one thing. So I naturally felt that I was good at building relationships. And so my classroom management wasn't such a thing, but I felt like I had no idea how to teach literacy. So that was my goal for the whole year was to get better at teaching literacy. And so that's what I did. And the school focused on explicit teaching at that time. It was new for learning intention, success criteria, that sort of thing. So as a whole school, we were focusing on that. It was great. I sort of got the best of both worlds in that sense. But I think just not focusing on too many things at once and trying to get really good at one thing and then we layer it on. And that is how we transfer things into long-term memory. So that is the best way to learn. Yeah. It's easy to get overwhelmed and think, oh, but I need to improve this and this and this. And so just focusing on one thing at a time. Yes, that is such beautiful advice. And I love how you use that strategy in your membership with the people that you work with to really scaffold them into this new way of being. Because being a teacher is so much more than what people see. It's so much more than what the classroom looks like. And I really love that you've highlighted the importance of doing one thing and focusing on something that you really want to nail down. And that's probably a good invitation for everyone listening that as we're moving into this new year, what is one area that you really want to dial in? And I'm also thinking that we are in the age of information. You don't have to just wait now for someone to tell you what to do. There is so much information available to us. Any topic that you're interested in, I'm sure there is an absolute backlog of podcast conversations. There's YouTube clips, there's webinars, there's professors from all over the globe that you can tap into in an instant. And as we move forward this year, what is it that you want to focus on? How can you build your practice? And a part of that is how can we support the junior teachers that we're working with to come on that journey as well? Yeah. 100%. And look, for me, if you are going to pick one area, emotional intelligence and well-being is the starting point because we talk a lot about holistic classroom management and supporting behavior and big feelings and not using punishment or awards, but rather tuning into our children. And that requires us to be the calm in the storm. And that's not to say that's how we roll all day, but emotional intelligence, really being aware of how you're feeling in the classroom, especially beginning teachers, we can get so nervous and then all of a sudden we feel 
powerless and we go straight to power over and then all of a sudden we're yelling or we're being really controlling because we feel out of control. And so if you're a new teacher listening to this, please know that's normal. That's our default. That's everyone's default. And so to build your emotional intelligence, we really look at that self-awareness piece. And that is why we get curious. We think about how we feel during the day, why we might be feeling those things. And then we sort of unpack that and look at some self-regulatory strategies that we can employ during the day. And that is one of the main pillars to conscious teaching. We cannot have all of the other things if we cannot regulate ourselves and really be present in the moment with our children. And gosh, it's just so far from what my initial experience was. So far, it just shows how much education has come along in leaps and bounds. My first few years, it was literally power over. Like, I am in control here. I am demanding control and you just have to do what I say. I remember wanting students to stand up and say, good morning. Like Now I look back and think, oh my goodness, like what was going on there? But I was just grappling for some sense of control when everything else felt felt so out of control. And I love this invitation so early in the year to really think about relationships, to think about that self-regulation, to think about co-regulation. What is the environment we're creating? What is the tone? What's okay here and what's not? 100% Meg and I know you said that when you started that's what it was like but unfortunately it's still happening a lot. I would say 80% of schools are still operating this way and that's why a lot of people that find me aren't necessarily new teachers because what they want to learn maybe they are parents who are adopting more of a conscious parenting approach and they see how it translates over to the classroom because it doesn't matter who we're interacting with, whether it's adults or children, people want to be more self-aware. They want to understand why people behave the way they do and how they can support them better. And so it all interlinks, which is great. It's so nice to see this shift. So I would say even three years ago, pre-Raffi, definitely, my nature was still to go to power over. Of course, like when I was stressed or dysregulated in the classroom and I felt like I was losing control, like I was praised on how firm I was and that my classroom was very orderly and the kids were all on track. And I was talking to a friend the other day how when we have one foot in conscious parenting and one foot out, it can come across as quite confusing for the kids and sometimes almost passive aggressive, right? And the kids don't feel safe because if we are saying one thing, but we are being another and we're behaving another and not creating that felt safety, then it's really unsafe for the kids because it's like, hang on a minute, she's saying that I can come to her for support or that I'm here for you or I'm here to listen to your feelings. And then all of a sudden she's growling at me or trying to control and it doesn't feel safe. So I just want people to exercise self-compassion too because there is that messy middle when we are moving sort of from one approach to the other and that's why it all does hinder on our self-awareness because we need to be aware and reflect if that's the way we're showing up then we're moving 1% closer to our goals and reflecting on that. So it's not something that happens overnight, I can assure you. I know you know that from parenting and all the things when we're trying to become a better parent or do things differently, it takes time. It certainly does. And I still have moments where I go to this place and I can hear myself saying things, oh, you're being ridiculous. You're throwing an absolute tantrum. It's not working for anyone, but permission to be human. And this conversation is really highlighting that working in schools is emotionally charged and also intellectually charged. There is so much that we need to know as educators. And when we don't know, that's where as senior teachers and experienced teachers, we have a 
a role and a responsibility to walk with our graduate and early career teachers and let them know if they notice something or if they see something and have conversations with them and ask those questions. What went well? What does good look like for you? What are you struggling with? Is there something that we can brainstorm together? Would you like to come into my classroom? And one of the observations I've made working in different schools is I can tell the culture of a school based on what's happening in the corridors, more so in primary school. But when I know a primary school is really up and about. What I'm hearing and seeing in the corridors is colleagues coming out and say, come and have a look at this. Come and have a look at this. Can you come to my classroom? Can you see this? And really having that open door in a sense of this is fun. Come in here and have a look at what we're doing. Yes. And look, that is all founded on reciprocal relationships in terms of both parties feeling confident within themselves and really open-minded and curious because often what I see is new teachers are really willing to adopt this new approach and they want to and they scrap their rewards or they want to work on this new approach and yet they don't get the support from, say, the experienced teachers or the leaders because they're doing it differently and you're a grad so you don't know what you're doing. And I just would love to invite experienced teachers and leaders to look into it and get curious and don't write grads off because they want to do something different. Yes, they've got a lot to learn, but they do bring so much new and fresh energy into schools and they've got lovely ideas and I think it's amazing that they want to become really effective teachers and we have to follow what the evidence is saying and we know all of this now so I just wanted to express that. Oh Amy, you do such incredible work. To wrap up this conversation I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? Sure thing. I am inspired by Oh, teachers, they do such a brilliant job. Our landscape at the moment is quite challenging and we lay it all out on the table and At the end of the day, the reason why we do this is because we love children and we want to help children. So teachers inspire me every day. When life feels hard? I lean more into gratitude. I find it quite easy to be grateful and that is because I've trained my brain over the years to go straight to that rather than the negative option. So yeah, gratitude. An underrated skill is? Well, we just spoke about emotional intelligence. We have to build our emotional intelligence. And I'm looking forward to... I'm looking forward to 2024, but first I'm going to reflect because 2023 has been absolutely huge for me. So I'm looking forward to what the Grad Guide brings in 2024. Thank you so much, Em, for the work that you're doing and really playing your part in closing the gap between what our grads and early career teachers are experiencing at the front line and what for so many of us feels like a distant memory to really bring that gap a little bit closer so we can both enjoy what's possible when you bring together fresh enthusiasm and a willingness to learn with experience and pragmatism. So thank you for your work and thank you for being guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. My absolute pleasure, Meg. I'm sure we could speak for days, but thanks for having me on. What a breath of fresh air M is. To learn more about M and the transformative Grad Guide mentorship, see the show notes for more details. In this great big sea of podcasting, the School of Wellbeing is a little fish and it takes a lot of time and energy to keep swimming. So if you found this conversation helpful and would like more teachers to tune into conversations like this, here are four ways you can support the show. Subscribe on your podcast app, Share an episode with a teacher friend or colleague. Leave a five-star rating or write a short review. 
To learn more about the ways that I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak, learn about my game-changing wellbeing programs or download my free five-step energy guide. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 114. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you soon. Until then, take care and take deliberate action.